Hey podcasters, John here. Thanks for tuning in. Unfortunately, we did not record the scripture reading this week, so I'm going to read it to you. It's from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, and then I'll, I'll start the sermon after I read. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word to us. Thanks for listening and hope the sermon is a help to you. Man, glad to have you all here. My name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here um, for RUF at the University of Texas. Uh, If this is your first time to be here, really glad that you're here. Thanks for giving us some of your time and checking this out. Um, at RUF, we are a place. Look at your, um, Stuart, let me see that handout real quick. Look at this song, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Just want to draw your attention to it. It's the second song we sang. And I know maybe you're here and you're like, man, why do we sing all these like really old songs at RUF? Uh, we sing some new ones too, but we sing a lot of old ones because we think that there's a lot of really beautiful um, poetry, but also just truths in these old songs. And Look at, uh, look at verse 5 of the sands of time are sinking. It says, Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. So this is saying, like, what is God's end game with us? What does he want to do? He wants, his, he wants to bring us into his joy. Our beloved is, we're his, and he is ours for anyone who's in Christ. And what does he desire to do but to bring us into his joy, into his house of wine? And how do we get in? Look at the next next line. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand. Not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. In other words, the only way that we get into this house of wine, as it were, 
It's not by our, our merit. So if this is your first religious thing to ever go to, or like one of the first Christian things that you've gone to in a while, or maybe ever, what I want you to see that this is saying is that Christians believe that the only way that we get any kind of access to God is because of what he's done, not because of what we've done. So what that means is we really believe here at RUF that no one here is better than anyone else. We all equally need God's grace. So we all come to him equally as people who need him, who need his merit to stand upon his merit because we know no other stand. So that's what we talk about every week at RUF. We come back to this truth because we think that's what the Bible is showing. And this, this semester we're going through the book of Acts. And Acts is this really interesting kind of historical book that's placed right after the, the four gospel accounts of who Jesus is and was when he was on earth. And the book of Acts comes right after those four accounts of Jesus, and it tells about the story of how Christianity began, how the church became a thing. And we looked last week at what the church looked like, what the early church looked like. And this week, what I want to look at is what does it look like? What does it look like to be a Christian? What starts happening to these Christians right as they begin kind of forming into a church and following Jesus? So before we do that, let me, let me pray for us and we'll start. Father, thanks so much for this time. I pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And that can only happen if you'll help us. I, I thank you for uh, anyone who's here who, who doesn't believe in you. And I just thank you that, um, that they would even consider um, coming to something like this. Uh, ask that you meet them uh, where they are. I pray for people who are here who are tired, uh, who are maybe cynical or skeptical. Um, for people who are here and excited, uh, wherever we are, Lord, I ask, uh, I, th- I thank you that you know where we are, that you are so well acquainted with us that you even know the very number of hairs on our head. And I pray that because you know us, that you would meet us um, where you want today. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm getting a lot of help tonight from two, uh, two pastors, Brian Habig and Tim Keller, uh, really helped me think through this um, passage. And one of the things in this passage that we see is a real transformation happen with someone. There's this guy named Peter who is totally transformed. And we love transformation stories in our culture, do we not? Right? Like, we love fixer-upper or... Um, like the, the, the show where like someone loses a ton of weight and um, biggest loser, yeah, like we love the transformation stories. Um, and when you see somebody, maybe you know someone who has who you've seen experience like a, a massive transformation. And whenever you meet someone like that, you see that happen in like a friend's life. Maybe you go away from from school for a while and you come back and you see your old high school friends and they're like way different. And the question that it begs is like, what happened to them? Like, what happened to you? That, that happened to me after I got married. So full disclosure, before I got married, I never ate a vegetable. Just period, I didn't eat vegetables. It just wasn't my thing. And like even, thing that, even things that were similar to vegetables but technically aren't vegetables, but they like grew like a potato, wouldn't eat a potato. Baked potato, put bacon on it, cheese, butter, whatever. Forget it. I'm not eating it. I wouldn't. I just couldn't eat it. I had, and I, I had this, like, I don't know if it was psychological or if I just didn't like it and I was super immature and just didn't grow up. It probably had something to do with it. But I just couldn't eat it. And I would, 
gag. I had this really horrible gag reflex. It was very embarrassing. And as funny as it was, my friends all thought it was hilarious, and they would always, you know, try to sneak nasty food and, or vegetables into my, you know, <laughs> into my sandwich or whatever. Um, it was also kind of an issue that I wasn't consuming, like, a really important part of the food pyramid. And so when Chrissy and I got engaged, she was like, okay, like, I'm marrying you. I want you to live, like, past the age of 40. So you have to start eating vegetables. And so bit by bit I did, but it, it, was, it was a slow, painstaking process. The, the way that we did it, every year I had to learn to like one vegetable. So the first year I had to learn to like lettuce. And so she would just serve me lettuce every single day. Some kind of dish with lettuce in it. And I would, I would like, <laughs> I'm like embarrassed. If y'all can see how I ate it, it was just so embarrassing because I'd just like eat the tiny smallest little crumb of it and like kind of gag and swallow it and she would look at me and say, you can do it, you can do it and I'd swallow it and she'd be like, oh I'm so proud of you, I'm like, oh my gosh I'm like the worst, I can't believe you're proud of me but I did it but here's the crazy thing, after like four or five years when she would, and we had this big ceremony that we would do and she'd video it and I would have to draw like a, 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 a bag like she put four bags in front of me and they'd all have different vegetables and I was always terrified of drawing the green bean bag and so like I would draw a bag and whatever it was like I'm learning that this year and by like the fifth year I wasn't afraid of the green bean bag anymore, I wasn't afraid of any of the bags I was like I can do this, I like vegetables and I'll never forget going back home and meeting up with a friend that I hadn't seen in a while and we went to go eat and we sat down and I ordered a salad and he just looked at me he was like what happened to you <laughs> right? like, you only used to eat hot dogs and french fries what is going on but when you see a transformation happen with someone it begs the question what happened to you Daniel Wong our assistant campus minister Daniel give a wave Daniel used to wear the same clothes pretty much every day right yeah, he was very, he's, if you know Daniel, he's very economic in the way that he thinks and does things. And so he wore, like, was it a t-shirt? White Hanes t-shirt. Done. That's what he wore. And then he met a very stylish, wonderful woman named HeJ, who he married. And now he, look how snazzy he is. Man, you're like all dapper and stuff. So, but... I would imagine when his friends met him and saw him, maybe I hadn't seen him in a while, they would look at him and be like, what happened to you? And the same thing is going on here because we've got these disciples who stand up in the midst of a very dangerous situation and they, are, they have transformed. They're totally different in this story from the way that they were a couple months before. And so it begs the question, what happened? So I want to look at three things that are going on in this story. First, the offensiveness of Christianity. The offensiveness of it. Second, the witness of Christianity. And third, the expectation of Christianity. So the offensiveness, the witness, the expectation. So the setting of this, we're trying to get through the whole book of Acts. So we're kind of, we're going fast. We skipped chapter 3. But what happens in chapter 3 is Peter and John are going to pray and to teach the gospel to some people and they're going to um, the temple and they see this beggar and the beggar asks them for money and in verse 6 of chapter 3 Peter looks at him and he says I have no silver and gold but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ rise up and walk 
And this man did. This man who'd been crippled for 40 years rises up and walks. He wasn't some no-name person that people didn't know about. Everyone had seen this guy sitting by this spot in the temple for 40 years. And now he's standing up and walking around, and it just created this massive stir in the city. And so there's this big ga- there's this gathering that happens. And I want you to see that this is what happens with Christian- when Christianity comes onto the scene it creates a stir because it's offensive. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. You've got all these different kinds of people who are bothered by it. It says in verse 2, they're greatly annoyed. Priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees. These are, that sounds like similar kinds of people. They're super different. The Sadducees were like, um, they would be like uh, religious liberals of that day. They didn't believe in miracles or the resurrection. Um, they didn't believe any of that kind of stuff was possible. They, they were just kind of about living a moral life. And then you've got the priests who were kind of the exact, like the total opposite end of the spectrum. They were very religious and very conservative with the way that they read the scriptures. And then you've got this guard who's like a political figure and rulers later in verse 5 who are these political figures. And all of them are bothered by Christianity. They're all bothered by it. And it's appropriate that they should be bothered by it because there is something unsettling about the claims of Christianity. Now look, you may have, you've heard it said in this room before, and it's true, that this is a safe place to come and process and think about your faith. But in some ways, this place is not safe. And what I mean by that is that what's not safe is the claims that Jesus makes about who he is. Because if it's true, it's entirely disruptive to our life and to the way that we see the world. disruptive because Jesus makes exclusive truth claims, and that's what these disciples start making here. And exclusive truth claims always bring disruption. I will never forget. Probably the the closest we've ever been at like an RUF event to someone throwing down and actually having a fist fight. It's like it was intense. It was at summer conference a couple years ago. It was a debate between two boys about who was better, Steph Curry or James Harden. And it got, it got intense. It got so intense that the, the one boy who actually didn't play high school basketball screams at the boy who did play high school basketball, you don't know anything about basketball! It's like in his face, pointing at him, red-faced. Why are they so... It's like, whoa, what's going on? Why did, they get so, why did this guy get so upset? Because an, exclu- an exclusive truth claim was being made. Something that's either true or not true. And that's what Peter is doing here. Look at verse 12. He says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the the religious leaders of the day, the people in power in that day, they understand that this is a threat. They... Notice that they don't say, hey, you know what? That works for you, man. Guys, like apostles, Peter, John, like that's great for you. That's your path to God. Like we're doing our path to God over here. You're doing your path to God over there. And so that's fine. Like you do you and we'll do us and like we'll be good. And we'll both get to God in different ways. They understand the threat of this claim. But 
we really do in our culture like to look I, I get why we like to think about there's like maybe there's more ways to get to God like maybe Buddhism is onto something maybe Hinduism is onto something Maybe Islam is onto something. Maybe Christianity and Judaism. Maybe they're all onto something. And one way that this gets illustrated, this idea of kind of, it's, it's called religious pluralism. There's lots of different ways to God. One way, you may have heard this illustration before, that this is illustrated is imagine that there's these five blind men, and none of them know what an elephant is. They never touched it, never seen it, obviously. And so they are asked, what is, what's an elephant like? And they're brought to this elephant, and the first blind man grabs hold of the elephant's trunk. And he says, well, an elephant is like a snake. But the second blind man who's touching the elephant's leg is like, no, an elephant's, an elephant's like a, a tree stump. And the third who's holding the elephant's tail is like, no, an elephant's, an elephant's like a rope. And the fourth is holding, um, he's holding the ear, and he's like, no, it's like a, it's like a big fan. And the fifth is, is touching the, the elephant's side. He's like, no, an elephant's a wall. And the, the point of that illustration is like, hey, like, they're all right. They're just kind of hitting different parts of the truth. And that's kind of what the world religions are like. They're all, they're all getting at something different that's true. Uh, but it's all, it's, it's all the same elephant. It's all the same guy. They're just kind of getting there different ways. And that sounds humble. And it sounds inclusive. But there's a massive problem with that rationale. Because the problem is, is, is that it assumes that the person who sees all five of the blind men touching the elephant is the only person who can see the whole picture in front. They're the only person who's enlightened enough to know that everyone's actually touching the same elephant. And that they're right and everybody else is only kind of right, and, but not really. And that they're right that everyone needs to be inclusive. Do you hear? Does that make sense? So what sounds like humility is actually its very own exclusive truth claim. Inclusivism, religiously, is really covert exclusivism. Because here's the thing with, with religious pluralism, with imagining that like this is all the same, we're all going to the same God, right? This is all the same path. It assumes one of two things. Either one, that there is no God at all. Or two, that God is a force that doesn't care what your beliefs about him are. And do you hear how like by even saying that about God, that that in itself is an assumption by faith? That's a faith claim. To say that there's lots of different ways to God. How do you know that? It's a faith claim. Just as much as the exclusive faith claim of a Christian. And so what this is, what religious pluralism is, is it's at best inconsistent and at worst hypocritical. Since you're doing the very thing you you are forbidding. To paraphrase Tim Keller, he puts it this way. Saying all religions are equally valid is itself... A very white Western view based on the European Enlightenment's idea of knowledge and values. And why should that view be, be privileged over anyone else's? Anyone, any religious belief is exclusive to some extent. And the com- here's, here's the common objection. If you're tracking with me, you're probably thinking this. And this is a good question. 
I get I, I have this question. And the question is, what about the good Buddhists? What about the good Hindus? Like, what about the people who just, who just don't know, but they're like, they're like good people? Do you hear how that, behind that question there's exclusivity? Because who does that question leave out? The bad people. The question, what about the good Hindus? What about the good, the good Jews, the good Hindus, the good Islam, Muslims? Like, what about them? You're leaving out the bad people. And what Christianity says is that anyone can come. Anyone. Christianity, while it is exclusive, it's the most inclusive of the exclusive faiths. And every faith is exclusive. It's the most inclusive. What sounds more inclusive to you? You need to be good enough? Does that sound inclusive? You need to be good enough. Which, by the way, has a whole series of questions behind it. Like, when do you know you've been good enough? How good is good enough? How, like, how can you be sure that you've been good enough? Does that sound inclusive, be good enough? Or does this sound inclusive? God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever. I think this is why sinners love Jesus so much. Like, it's why, it's why a lot of prostitutes and drunks and demon-possessed people were drawn to him. Because they, they were not um, under the illusion that they could be good enough. And the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be either. Are you tired of trying to be good enough? Oh my goodness. I feel like at Texas, you guys have to be good enough at everything. Are you tired of that? Do you feel like God treats you that way? That he looks at you and is like, you need to be good enough to deal with me. To come into my presence. The good news of the gospel is that you, you don't. I want you to see the witness of Christianity. What, what do these, these transformed people stand up and do? First, they have boldness. Like real boldness. They, they appear before the Sanhedrin, this, this gathering of um, elders and religious figures who are going to rule about what they should do. They're going to make a judgment about what they should do. This is, back in the first century, if you were brought before the Sanhedrin, most people would wear funeral clothes when they went. Because that's how serious and dire your situation was. It was like, I'm going to put on these funeral clothes because like, I'm, I'm in trouble. But not only that, this is the exact same scene that Jesus is stepping into two months prior. Two months before this scene happens, Jesus is standing before these very same people, even by name, Annas, Caiaphas. They're the same people that Jesus is standing before and they send him to the cross. And now Peter and John, two of Jesus' best friends, Peter, who back then when Jesus was in that court, Peter was outside of the room denying that he even knew Jesus. He was so afraid. 
That's what, that's where Peter was. And John had just run, like everyone had run away. All the disciples ran away. Peter got kind of close and saw it. And then he started denying that he even knew Jesus. So much so that he rained down curses so that no one would ever believe that he was a follower of Jesus. That's how afraid he was. He was so afraid of that scene. And now he finds himself right in the middle of it. Not sitting outside, scared and denying to a little girl who walks up to him, which is what he did. But now standing in front of those very people who killed his best friend. Imagine being, being back at the place of your biggest loss and your biggest failure. That's where Peter is right now. And what does he do? He's in the place where you would wear funeral garments, in the place where he had, to, where he had been so afraid before, he starts preaching. They probably weren't expecting a sermon at this point, but that's what Peter does. He preaches a sermon to them because he, he has this boldness, this crazy boldness. And I, I, I even want you to think about this. Like, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, if Peter was just trying to like lie and like trick them, if he's lying about the resurrection, he, in this moment, he's looking at his best friend's murderers who might be about to kill him. And what does he do? He offers them forgiveness. How insane is that? He begins preaching to them about the good news of Jesus. And man, I, when I read about this boldness, it is, it's convicting. Like, if you're a Christian here tonight, and you're reading this, and like you think about, like, what would I do in that situation? You're, you're probably feeling convicted, too. I know, I, as I've studied this, I've felt convicted. And I think about, like, what, what is it that keeps us from being bold? I think one of the things is feeling like we, we don't have all the answers. Like, feeling like, I, before I open my mouth and tell anyone about Jesus, I need to be an expert. I need to, like, be an expert in theology and philosophy and religion and psychology and sociology. I need to, need to be an expert so I can just, like, you know, they can set up the question and I can knock them down, just one after the other. And so I can just kind of, like, outsmart somebody into heaven. But do you see, do you see what the religious leader's response is in verse 13? When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. These guys aren't whiz, like whizzing them with their knowledge. They're common men. How is it that people will know Jesus? Is it by them being so amazed by us? That's kind of what we want, right? We, what we want is for us to have this like amazing, beautiful life. Uh, with an amazing job, with an amazing spouse, and a beautiful house. Ooh, I'm rapping now. Um, and, like, just all this great stuff. And then for somebody that we've kind of been around for a lot, to just to be like, man, you are really awesome. Like, what's the secret? And then we're like, Jesus, boom! You know, like, that's kind of like what we imagine is the way that we're going to share the gospel with people. Like, through our strength and awesomeness, because everyone's just so impressed with us. And they want to know what our secret sauce is. And we're going to tell them that. We're going to let them in on the secret. I think that it often happens another way. What if it's not through our strength, but like with Peter and John here, it's through our weakness. that People come to find out who Jesus is. 
Because secondly, what's going on with the witness of Christianity, what we see the way that Christianity is witnessed to is with humility. With abject humility. Verse 11, Peter says, listen, you rejected Jesus. But then in verse 12, he says, I want you to know there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What's he mean when he says we? Do you know what he's getting at? He's saying, listen, I'm identifying with you. There's no other way that anyone can be saved. That, that I, Peter, and you, my enemies who killed my best friend, we can be saved. I need it. You need it. But let me tell you, I, I, Peter, I need it. Peter identifies himself with his enemies. He identifies himself with sin and mess. I remember when I was in high school, I worked at a baseball card shop. Fun fact about me. Um, and the, uh, the lady there was an absolute, she chain smoked all the time. She just like, and I, for some reason, whenever I smell someone smoking cigarettes, I think of baseball cards still. And it's kind of nostalgic for me. I don't know why. But um, I remember asking her, I was like, would you like, would you go to church with me sometime? Because we've been talking about like Christianity. And she goes, I'm not going to church. A place is full of hypocrites. And I, <laughs> I remember as like high school me, I was just like, I don't know what to say. Like, I have no idea how to respond to this. <laughs> she stumped me <laughs> because she's right. <laughs> and do you know what I wish I had said? You're right. I'm a hypocrite. I'm one of them. And guess what? Jesus loves hypocrites. Come on, come, come to church with me. Because the good news of the gospel is there's no other name by which we can be saved. It's by him and by his righteousness and his good works, not by ours that we're saved. You know what happens when we begin believing that? We become less hypocritical. Because instead of looking down our nose at people like, hmm, they should be better. Did you see what she did on Friday night? I thought better of her. I guess now we know. Right? We need to pray for her. That's like the Christian gossip. You know, like, I have a prayer request for my friend. Let me tell you what she did last night. You know, like, <laughs> there's. Do you know what understanding our need for grace does? It makes, us, it makes us humble. It humbles us because there's no reason that Jesus should have come and saved us. We didn't do anything to deserve it. And so when we see somebody who's a mess, we see ourselves. We see ourselves in them. So Peter is standing before these men, murdered his best friend. He's like, me too. I need grace too. Um, don't you want that? Wouldn't you like a community where everyone admits that they're needy? So you don't have to fake. You can be authentic about your need with one another. That's what's held out to you. That's what's happening here in this church. Um, third, finally, the expectation of Christianity. What can you expect? And this is another part of what I mean when I say it's not safe. Because I want you to see what happens in verse 21. After they stand and they give testimony of who Jesus is, they boldly and humbly share the good news of Jesus with these men. Verse 21 Finding no way to punish them, 
Uh, I'm sorry, verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. This is an introduction to suffering. It's the very first taste of it, and it's about to come on full blast. Because what you can expect as a Christian is to suffer and to be persecuted. You can expect it. It happened to our Savior. It happened. We believe that the king and creator of the universe suffered, so we shouldn't expect to get better treatment than him. We will suffer in this life. And if there really is a battle between good and evil, which the Bible is suggesting that there is, if there really is a God and an evil one, the evil one, he hates this. He hates that you would come to God who is so willing to give of himself to you. He hates that. And so what he does is he traffics in fear. In fear because he, he doesn't want you to be bold. He wants you to be afraid of what other people will think. He wants you to be afraid of your friends and your family. He doesn't want you to be humble. He wants you to be puffed up and proud. To not need God. But to be self-righteous. Because he's self-righteous. That's what he wants. But because of what Jesus has done, we can suffer expectantly. He says this in, verse, in Luke 6.26. He says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Ooh, I hate that verse. Ugh, Really? God, Jesus, I want everyone to speak well of me. He says, woe to you if that's the case. Because if you're following him, there's going to be times when that doesn't happen. You will not be spoken well of. You will not be thought well of. You will be marginalized and teased and made a fool of. So why, like, why would we do this? Why, I, I was watching a documentary about... Um, Christians who are going into Muslim countries to share the gospel. And this one man who went into Iran, which is like maybe one of the dangerous places for a Christian to go. Before he went, he wrote a letter forgiving the person who who he expected would murder him. He wrote a letter and recorded a video and put it in his top drawer so that whoever murdered him would find it and know that he forgives them. He expected it. It's going to happen. I'm going to be persecuted. Why can we expect that? And why can we actually even, like, sign up for it? Like, why would we want that? Y'all, the only, the only way that Peter and John can stand in front of these men and bear testimony to what they believe is true is that they believe it's true. These people who were so scared are now so brave and so bold. Why would that massive change happen? There's one big conclusion they saw the resurrected Jesus and that changes everything. It changes everything. So they're not afraid anymore. Um, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts. I'll close with the story. And uh, this woman named Michaela was talking about growing up in a big family. She had seven siblings and she was um, the second oldest. And she said one of her favorite things to do was to terrify her younger siblings. It brought her great pleasure. And 
one day she was at like a flea market and she saw this like horrifying werewolf mask. <laughs> she was like, I'm buying that. I'm scaring my little siblings. And so Michaela buys this werewolf mask and she said like over the course of that whole week, she kind of began like, gathering like pieces of her costume. So she got like one of her mom's shawls and she got this old ragged looking shirt from her dad. And she kind of pieced together this really creepy, spooky looking outfit that covered, it covered her skin entirely. And she puts on this werewolf mask and waits for nighttime when her four-year-old and six-year-old brother are going to sleep. Right? Like, dang, they're young. Are you serious? So her little brothers um, are going to sleep. Oscar, or Ozzy and Victor... And Michaela tips into Ozzy and Victor's tiptoes into Ozzy and Victor's room. She creaks the door open, and she's going right up to Victor's bed and is about to just scare the living daylights out of him when all of a sudden, out of the shadows, this tall figure stands up above her. She looks up, and it's her mother, and she says, Get out of here! And Michaela just turns and runs away and gets back in her bed. She's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get it. I'm going to die. I'm going to get it. My mom's going to be so mad at me. But her mom never says anything about it. Never punishes her. Two years later, she's talking to her brothers. And her mom's like giving her a bunch of chores. She's asked her to babysit. She's like, oh gosh, mom's the worst. Why does mom always make me do all this stuff? And little Victor, who's like six at this point, is like, don't say that about mommy. Mommy's the best. She's like, what's your deal with mommy? She's like, don't, I'm like, don't talk bad about mommy. Mommy is, mommy's awesome. Mommy's the best. She's like, why, do you, like, why are you standing up for mommy so much? What's the deal? And he's like, well, mommy's just so great. One time when I was in my room and it was late at night, this monster came into my bedroom and mommy just stood up and she said, get out of here. And the monster just ran away. He really thought his mom had power to look at a, mon- a werewolf monster that was about to kill him. This literally happened in his bedroom, and he, he saw his mother stand up and tell it to leave, and it did. Like, his worst fear came to life, and he saw that the person who loved him the most had the ability to just tell it to go away. That's why we can be bold. The stuff that you're the most afraid of. Death itself. The one who loves you the most has walked into the teeth of it to save you because he loves you, because he wants to be with you, because he welcomes you. So why can we be bold? This isn't like a, I don't want you to go and leave being like, okay, I got to do better. I got to go and be bold and be humble and be like, do all this stuff. No. This isn't like go behave better sermon. This is... The only reason that Peter and John begin behaving differently is they see that the resurrection is true. Jesus Christ of Nazareth rose from the dead. He defeated the scariest monsters in this world. And if that's true, it changes everything. Do you think it's true? If it does, it, it will alter your life. It's dangerous to believe this. But it's the best news. You can have peace. I want that for y'all. That's why I do this. I want y'all to know this. Because God is loving. And he's not sitting around waiting around for you to figure it out. And to be better. He welcomes you now.
Father, thanks so much for the good news of the gospel. Help us to believe it and help us to love you. Pray for anyone who's here who, um, who does know you and maybe even feels shame about not being bold or not being humble or not knowing all the answers. I pray that they would see that you've already paid for that and that you love them. And I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't yet know you. And I ask that you would be with them as they consider if this is true or not and how it would change their life. Thanks. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song.